never be good, though God can use it for good. But when is good bad? God gives us many good things. He's given us a beautiful habitat, an ecosystem. We realize that, I think, more in days like this sometimes than on other days, but what a, what a gorgeous, beautiful day it is. He's given to us creative abilities to make art and music and poetry and to do science and philosophy and theology. When is good bad? Well, good things, bad things, when they become ultimate things. In fact, the Bible has a word for that when we take good things and make them ultimate things. It's called idolatry. Idolatry results when we make good things, the good things that God gives us or enables uh, for us, into ultimate things. Physical fitness is a good thing. Physical fitness worshipped is a bad thing. Music is a good thing. Music worshipped is a bad thing. And idolatry hides so easily in our hearts because the goodness of good things can't be denied. I saw a post the other day. It said, um, it said if I ever win the lottery, I won't tell anyone, but there will be signs and the person was surrounded by a hundred dogs. We wouldn't tell people about our idols, but there'll be signs. And some of the things that we can make into idols would surprise you. We've been reading in John's Gospel, going to begin or pick up, I should say, in uh, chapter 9 and verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such signs? So they were divided. And finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It's your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? The one that you say, is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, 
he is of age, ask him. Second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, Now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he came from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man said, Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Father, as we come to you today, help us to see and acknowledge our blindness that we may see. Not be among those who say they see and who are blind. Amen. When we read of the Pharisees in the New Testament, we read of them and we think, them, the Pharisees, or them, those people. We shouldn't. The Pharisees were the OPC of their day. About 330 BC, uh, Alexander the Great had conquered the Mediterranean basin and Israel along with it. In fact, it's uh, for that reason that the New Testament is written in Greek and not some other language. About 323 BC, Alexander died. His empire um, split into four sections, was fought over by four of his generals. Uh, Israel became a kind of a battleground, changed hands a few times until the empire run by Seleucus, the Seleucid Empire, came to dominate Israel. I did for a couple of centuries, just about 167 BC, a fellow by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes thought that the way to consolidate his empire was going to be to stamp out the Jewish culture and customs and religion, and so he launched the campaign to do that. And that so uh, enraged some of the Jews that uh, what happened in response is what historians have come to call the Maccabean Revolt. That revolt led eventually to a uh, man by the name of John Hyrcanus, as they, as they gained a tenuous and temporary independence, 
Uh, John Hyrcanus declared himself to be high priest. If you say, that doesn't sound like a very Jewish name, it's not. It's a very Hellenized name, a very, a very Grecian name. The man was a Jew, but he wasn't a descendant of Levi. And, and then one of his sons, a fellow by the name of Aristobulus, uh, declared himself to be king. And so you've got a high priest who's not a Levite, and a king who's not of the tribe of Judah, nor of the line of David. And so Israel had her temporary and tenuous national independence, but spiritually, she was a catastrophe. And it was in reaction to that spiritual catastrophe that the party of the Pharisees formed. That word uh, Pharisee, um, it comes from a Hebrew root. The word means something like separatist, but don't think of them as the uh, English separatists who sought to separate from the Church of England. They weren't looking to separate from the church, but what they were looking to do was separate from the impurity of the church because of its departure from God's word. And the historian Josephus tells us that this party of the Pharisees then were respected by the people for their uncompromising commitment to righteousness and the principles of God's word. When Herod the Great came to power, the Sadducees were all too willing to swear an oath of allegiance to Herod and to Rome, but not the Pharisees. They refused to do so. They didn't live in open rebellion, but they simply said, we will not give our allegiance to Rome and to her puppet king. And so the people of the land had a great deal of respect for the uncompromising righteousness of the Pharisees. When it came to God's word and the teaching that was derived from it, there could be no compromise as far as, far as the Pharisees were concerned. No accommodation to the culture. No bending of the rules. The Pharisees were the Orthodox Presbyterians of their day. And what they fell victim to was a warning for us. The danger is very great when doctrine becomes deity. A doctrine is another word for theology. And theology is uh, the study of God, or more precisely, the study of God's revelation of himself uh, in his word, and it is the human echo of the divine voice. And so unless you claim to have reached perfection... Your theology must be always growing, always deepening, always developing. And unless a church has reached perfection, her theology must always be growing, always be deepening, always be developing. We read in the psalm today in our responsive reading in Psalm 115. When we worship and serve the works of our hands or the works of our minds, we become lifeless. 
That's the danger when doctrine becomes deity. How can we know if doctrine has become deity? Well, there's some indications here in our text. Doctrine has become deity when it is used to dictate what God can and cannot do, must and mustn't do, will and will not do. Pardon, pardon the directness of my language, friends. I get myself in trouble sometimes, but God could not, God will not, God would never are some of the stupidest words that have ever been spoken. Come on, Job, fess up. We know that you're hiding something because our theology has God figured out. And we know that God would never allow the kind of suffering to come into the life of a righteous man as he's allowed to come into your life. So what are you hiding? And when doctrine becomes a box into which we can safely contain God, our doctrine, the work of our minds, has become our God. We read, they, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And the man said, he put mud on my eyes, and, he, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. The Pharisees were the guardians of the integrity of the Sabbath. They were all about, remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. They had a well-formed Sabbath doctrine. And they analyzed down to minute, minute detail what keep the Sabbath holy meant. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And of course they were utterly certain of what they derived from those few words. Keeping the Sabbath means doing certain things, one of which was not healing people. Breaking the Sabbath meant doing certain things which included healing people. Nothing could be more obvious that Jesus is not from God. If he were, he would keep the Sabbath. You know, the question is never asked this directly, but the situation seems to beg the question. And some of the things that Jesus says to them, because this isn't the first time he'll tangle with them over the Sabbath, seems to come close. Has it ever occurred to you that perhaps helping your neighbor, blessing your neighbor, relieving your neighbor of the evil that he suffers, that maybe that is keeping the Sabbath? But no, the notion is preposterous. Truly, if God meant something like that, we would have figured it out. I wonder if it's a necessary stage, you know, making your doctrine your God. 
No, no one who's careless about their faith would do so. That wasn't a problem for the Sadducees, wasn't a problem for the Herodians. Now it comes about in people who really care about their faith. That's trouble. I once talked with a man whose Sabbatarianism rivaled that of the Pharisees. And as we talked, and you know, talked about down to minute detail with keeping the Sabbath, man, I put a question to him. I said, I, you know, I hope this never happens. It's a hypothetical. If you got a call one Sunday afternoon, this is hypothetical, right? Call one Sunday afternoon that your, that your mother was dying. And to get to her, you had to travel across Death Valley. And the, and the, and the light on your, on your gas gauge was on. What would you do? Would you buy gas to go see your mom? He said, he said, no. I said, well, what would you do? He said, well, he said, I, I want to honor God and keep the Sabbath. So either I would let my mom die alone, uh, or I would pray for a miracle and drive across the desert, and God would deliver me there, or I would die in the desert, and if I did, I would die with the satisfaction of knowing that I'd kept the Sabbath. And I said to him, forgive me, you know, for pressing this, but what if your, what if your wife and kids were with you? What would you do? He said, I would do the same thing. And, and if we died in the desert, that would show how much we loved God and how much we were keeping the Sabbath. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. In the Bible, we're told that the fulfillment of the law is to be found in loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. It was Martin Luther who said that God doesn't need our good works. Our neighbor does. And then I think it's striking that we've got a couple of places in the New Testament when it speaks that the, the law is fulfilled in the words love your neighbor as yourself. Why does it say that? Because it's really easy to say, I love God. The proof of that comes in how we treat others. It's laudable that the man wanted to keep the Sabbath. If it weren't so tragic, it would be laughable that he thought that that was the way to do it. Jesus obviously wasn't from God because he had healed someone on the Sabbath. And, and God would never approve of anyone who did that. Doctrine has become our deity when by it we dictate what God can and cannot do. I will forever be grateful to God that sometime uh, in my young life as a pastor, I realized that God doesn't merely refuse to fit into my box, that oftentimes he stamps my box into matchsticks. Our doctrine becomes our deity when by it we dictate what God can do. Relatedly, doctrine has become or deity, when it renders God safe and tame. 
J.I. Packer spoke of the York signal box fallacy. Um, now, he's talking about something that I have no experience about. He talked about the, the train yards at York. Maybe you guys know it. Though. I have no idea what that is. But he said that if you go there and you, and you look at the train yards at York, it'll be baffling, confusing. There's trains going this way and that, and uh, you know, it looks like things are going to collide, and then they miss at the last minute. And he said, but if, but if you were ever fortunate enough, uh, privileged enough to be taken up to the York signal box, then it would all make sense to you because you'd see there on a lighted panel the movement of the trains and how some move and then stop and others go. And what J.I. Packer said is that people think that by, uh, by becoming a Christian, by studying the Bible, by studying theology, means that God has taken them into his confidence. And so now they stand in the York signal box and they look and they survey all that goes on that's confusing to other people and they understand why everything is the way it is. It all makes sense to them. And nothing that God does now could ever be unexpected or mysterious. And if it is, why that means that God's obviously not involved in that or it's not of God. Because they, being in the York signal box, now see as God sees. They can predict what God is going to do. God is rendered safe and tame. And the only obvious conclusion such people come to in the case of this blind man staring them in the face is that the whole thing has been faked. We read that Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. If reality doesn't conform to my theology, then I just need to deny reality. If I think that God has taken me into his secret council so that I can now predict what God will and will not do, can and cannot do, then anything contrary to my prediction or uh, coming out differently than I thought it would must not be of God. And it's the point at which theology, let me remind you again of the definition of that, it's the human echo of the divine voice, goes from being the reflexive creation of our own minds to an idol that is worshipped and served instead of God. Uncomfortable yet? If you're not, you're not paying attention. When God becomes the lapdog of theologians rather than the lion of Judah, it is no longer God who is being worshipped. And thirdly, an indication that doctrine has become deity is that when doctrine becomes deity, inconvenient people must be gotten rid of. 
the man of our story. We're not told how old he is, but uh, we can conclude from the text that he's at least 13 years old, that it's the age at which he would have been bar mitzvah, would have become uh, an adult in that society, would have become what we would call a communicant member of the church. It appears, not certain of this, but it appears that he may live at home, have some dependency upon uh, his parents, but he's legally an adult. seems that he uh, contributes to his own maintenance by begging or has done that. And so they summon his mom and dad and they say, is this your son? Uh, how was he born blind? How is it that he now can see? And we're told, well, we, we know that he's our son. And we know that he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Now, that was true enough. They don't know. There's no indication that they were there. But they say, ask him. He is of age. He's a communicant member. He's responsible for himself. He'll speak for himself. And we're told that his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue, would be excommunicated. That is why his parents said, he he is of age. Ask him. Because their doctrine had become their deity, it was evident that Jesus was a sinner. If he wasn't a sinner, he would have acted in a way that was predictable to them. Would have acted in a way that they thought, no, that they knew was proper. Jesus wasn't the Christ, couldn't be the Christ. And so despite what they could not now deny, because his parents were there saying, no, that's our son, yes, he had been born blind, Uh, yeah, he, he is seeing now, obviously, Despite what they couldn't deny, they determined that anyone who acknowledged him was inconvenient and must be gotten rid of. But, but the man, you see, the man's met Jesus. And, and so he, he, he won't back down. He can't back down. He, he will not lie for the sake of their doctrinal safety. And so he must be gotten rid of. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. That's a theological statement. I think he got it from the Pharisees. Thank God that's not true. Thank God he hears sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If if, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. You know, the point of that is we should have gotten rid of you a long time ago. How How did we ever abide you with us? How dare you lecture us? And they cast him out. They threw him out. They put him out of the synagogue. 
when doctrine becomes deity, inconvenient people must be gotten rid of. And so eventually they'll have to get rid of Jesus. Because when doctrine becomes deity, Jesus, the Son of God, becomes the inconvenient competition. And he must be done away with. Let me say it again. If you don't find this unsettling, you are not paying attention. Is doctrine, theology bad? Heavens no. But when we forget that it is the reflective work of our mind, when we supplant God with it, we make it an idol. When is good bad? When a good thing is made an ultimate thing and put in the place of God. And when that happens with theology, people dictate what God can and cannot do, will and will not do, must and mustn't do, When it happens with theology, God is rendered a safe and tame lapdog. When that happens with theology, inconvenient people must be gotten rid of. And so when doctrine becomes deity, a young minister whose wife commits adultery sues him for divorce and moves in with the man that she's committed adultery with must be driven from the ministry because, after all, God hates divorce. When doctrine becomes deity, a man whose wife, after years of chronic sickness and suffering and unable to get any relief from medical doctors, finally in desperation goes into a health food store and buys some natural remedies and supplements, and lo and behold, she has some relief. And she thanks God and gives glory to God for for this providential provision for her and her husband, is driven from the church for allowing his wife to practice witchcraft. The writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus suffered outside the camp. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. And so this man is cast out. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. When he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, Tell me so that I may believe in him. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's never seen him before. He went down to the southern end of the city, not being able to see, came back seeing he doesn't know who Jesus is. Jesus said, You have now seen him, in fact, He is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see 
will become blind. There is safety in Jesus. The danger is very great when doctrine becomes deity. Father, no wonder uh, the Apostle John uh, told us, out of the blue, to guard our hearts from idols. As your servant John Calvin said, that our hearts are veritable idol factories. We can take any good thing and make an idol out of it. Deliver us from doing that, we pray. And may we worship and serve never the works of our hands or of our minds, but worship and serve you alone. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.